we're glad you took time to come. If you're joining us online, we're glad that you've chosen that option as well, whether it's Facebook or maybe at capcity.info. Uh, we're glad to have you worshiping with us this morning as well. Let's get started. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, I hope that you don't feel guilty if your heart wasn't pounding with excitement when I read those verses from Matthew's book. I'm sure some of you might have been thinking, what on earth is he doing? What did Doc do putting this guy on stage today? How many of you, be honest now, when you come to a section like this, either skim it or skip it altogether? Hands? And you people call yourselves Christians. <laughs> you ever wonder why Matthew started out his book like this? I mean, aren't you supposed to start a book with, with something that captures the attention, that, that draws the reader in? Stephen King, this pretty famous writer, says, an opening line should invite the reader to begin the story. It should say, listen, come in here. You want to know about this. Opening lines like this, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Do you know the book? Anybody? A Tale of Two Cities. Whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether the station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. The book? Don't worry, I didn't read it either. David Copperfield, by the way. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Anybody know the book? I'm sorry? Pride and Prejudice. There we go. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. 
Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah, that one got the best response in the first service as well. But attention grabbers, right? So it seems quite odd to us that Matthew would begin his writing with what seems like a list of boring people. But there's a reason that he does. Because in this opening chapter of his gospel, he provides those that he's writing to in the early church, as well as us today, a sense of hope. Hope for them that Jesus, who they had seen or possibly even heard about, was the Messiah, who they had waited for many, many years. And hope for us, that regardless of where we've been, Jesus is our Messiah as well. And I'm hoping that as we unwrap this first chapter of Matthew's book, that we'll find a note of reassurance about God's grace as we begin this Advent season. You know, one of the things that I learned in studying for our time together today, I'm going to borrow from Tim Keller, who's probably one of the best preachers and Christian writers out there today. Keller wrote these words. He said, the gospel is good news, not good advice. It's not something that we do, but something that has been done for us and something that we must respond to. Now, Matthew starts out with a genealogy, which was his way of saying, what I'm going to tell you about actually happened, and here are real people who can validate it. You see, Christianity's most important feature is that it is actual history because the core of Christianity is not a set of principles that Jesus taught to us, but something that Jesus was going to do for us. You know, most religions, when, when you peel back the layers, are built on teachings and principles that would be true whether their religious founder ever lived or not. The religious founder was just a, a mouthpiece for those teachings. For example, the principles of Buddhism don't depend on Buddha being an actual person. Those principles, Buddhists believe, undergird the universe, and Buddha was just the, the mouthpiece for them. It's the same thing for Islam. Islam is a pattern for how Allah wants his followers to live. Muhammad was just the prophet, just the mouthpiece for that teaching. Now, Muslims will tell you that Muhammad was a real, actual person. But the principles and teachings of Islam do not depend on Muhammad being a real person. But this is not true with Christianity. Christianity depends on a set of events that actually took place and that we have a record of because the core of Christianity is not what Jesus taught us to do, but what he would do for us. You know, scholars point out that the Gospels, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those books that contain the, the record of Jesus' life, are basically just prologues to the death of Christ. For you see, the central element in each gospel is the death of Christ. You know, when you look at it, we, we know very little about the first 30 years of Jesus' life from the gospels. And we get a tad bit more info about his three years of ministry and teaching. But the main focus of those four books is on one week in which he would go to a cross, bear the penalty for our sins, die in our place, and then rise again. And so Matthew starts out by giving us a list of real people who were connected to Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. The Gospels do contain a lot of things that Jesus taught. But the focus of the Gospels is not on what Jesus taught as much as what he did. And that's why Tim Keller says the Gospel is not primarily good advice. It is good news. You know, the word Gospel means an announcement 
of good news. In Greek, the word gospel is the word euangelion. It's a combination of two words, you meaning good and angelion meaning message, good message. And the one who would have delivered this message or this good news would have been called an angelos or an angel. When Jesus was born, who showed up? Angels. And what did they say? Hey, we have good news because the great teacher is here. Now, that's not what they said. They said, we have good news for everybody. A Savior has been born, a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. You see, what they and what we and what the world and what all humanity didn't need was another religious teacher. I mean, the world hadn't listened to all of the other teachers that had, become, that had come before this important birth. Why would they? Why would we? Why would anyone choose to listen to a new one? In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, we have never followed the advice of the great teachers. Why would we be likely to begin now? Why would we be more likely to follow Christ than any of the others? Because he is the best moral teacher? <laughs> that even makes it less likely that we shall follow him, Lewis wrote. If we cannot take the elementary lessons, he said, is it likely we're going to take the most advanced ones? If Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance, he said. For you see, there has been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. And a bit more would not have made a difference. But you see, what we needed was a different kind of teacher with a better message who could do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And God became that for us by entering into our world as a baby and then becoming our Savior. And those who believe that and then receive it would be forever changed. But not primarily because of what Jesus taught, but because of what he did for us. Folks, you're, you're not a Christian if you're just trying to emulate the moral teachings of Jesus. And unfortunately, we all know people who think because they're good and they haven't done anything bad or at least, you know, really bad, that they're going to be okay. No doubt that Jesus' teachings are good standards to follow and live by, but those teachings won't save you. Because Christianity is not just a set of teachings to follow, but a gift to be believed in and received. And once received, hopefully it leads to a changed life. Because the gospel is not just good advice. It is good news. And this good news should lead us to a different life. You know, another thing that we see in this genealogy is that Jesus is the center of history. You know, Matthew takes what the world would have considered to be an insignificant family line, and he organizes all of humanity around it, all of history around it. And here's why this is important. For you see, at this point, it certainly didn't seem like Jesus was the focal point of history. Israel was a small, hicktown, Middle Eastern country that was under the rule of somebody else. And, and nobody in Rome was paying attention to this family line. But years ago, God had made a promise to Abraham to bring salvation to the world through Jesus and to bring the whole world into subjection to him. At this point in time, you've got these really powerful nations and rulers that seem like they're the ones who are directing things making things happen. But what Matthew shows us in this genealogy is that God is the one guiding it all according to his plans 
for the Messiah. Let me give you a quick example of that. You know, one of the details that most people know about Christmas is that Mary and Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem because Rome was taxing everyone and you had to go to your home city and be registered. Now, Luke explains to us that God's purpose for this was so that one of the prophecies about the Messiah could be fulfilled. That prophecy can be found in the Old Testament in a book that was written by this guy named Micah. Micah wrote these words. He said, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one for me who will be ruler over Israel. So God did what Micah had written about hundreds of years before this time. He moved Rome to place this tax on people so that he could get Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem. But you ever wonder why God did it that way? I mean, making all of the Israelites go back home for a tax, paying money to a country that they didn't like? Why, why not just appear to Joseph in a dream and say, Hey, Joseph, get Mary and go back to Bethlehem. And the prophecy still would have come true, right? But I think God did it to show us that he can move nations around like pieces on a chessboard to accomplish his will, even his purpose in and with Jesus. He taxed the whole world to get two people to move about 100 miles. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> but here's why that should be encouraging to you and me. It doesn't look now like Jesus is the center of anything, does it? Past, present, or future. I mean, news stations aren't in our churches this month paying attention to what is taking place in our services as we celebrate the birth of Jesus. They're watching what they think are the most important things, the transition taking place in the presidency at our White House. They're watching what other world leaders are doing, Russia and China. They're, they're wondering what's happening with the stock markets. They're, they're, they're watching what's going on with COVID and, and the vaccines that are coming. But folks, these things are an insignificant drop in the bucket. For you see, the center of history is what God is doing in the kingdom of Jesus. The accomplishing of his purpose to take salvation to every nation on earth and to bring the whole world into subjection to him. And he will move around whatever he needs to, nations or people, to accomplish his purposes. You know, I'm sure at this point in time, many of the Israelites were completely discouraged. You know, they looked around and they didn't see how God was fulfilling this promise that they had heard about for hundreds and hundreds of years because Rome was in charge. No longer was Israel a world power. They had become a whipping boy for the Romans. And now they're being forced to leave their homes, travel long distances on foot or donkey or whatever they used, and pay money to a ruler that they didn't like. Many of us today are discouraged when we look around, when we see unbelief growing in our country, and unbelief growing in our communities, and, and maybe even in our own families. We, we see division growing daily between us because of politics or because of the, the color of a person's skin. We see secularism taking over, institutions being corrupted, and our nation being destroyed by leaders who cannot get along with each other and who think they know what is best for everybody else. But folks, don't be deceived. You know, it didn't look back then like God was accomplishing his purpose, but he was. He was doing his greatest work but no one was seeing it at that moment. All they could see was trouble and despair and an unforgiving world. Is the same thing true in your life? 
But you may be discouraged because it may look like you're subject to forces that are out of your control. But God has a purpose and a plan in your life. That's to reveal Jesus to you and to glorify himself in you. Everything in your life has ultimately been about that. You know, Paul gave us this encouragement in his book that he wrote to the, to the church at Rome when he said, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Do you believe that? It's not just a few things. It's not some things. It's all things, good and bad. But sometimes it's hard to see, isn't it? Sometimes it doesn't feel like it. But let, let me remind you that Jesus was there when this whole thing started. And he's going to be, be there when this whole thing comes to an end. And just in case you may have forgotten, let me remind you, he wins. One more thing that I hope we see in this list is that we all, regardless of who we are, where we come from, the color of our skin, we all matter to God. You know, when you look at this list of individuals, you will see just how messed up some of Jesus' ancestors were. And yet they were a part of Jesus' genealogy, his family line. Look at that first person listed in verse 2, this guy named Abraham. Abraham, you may remember, was, was handpicked by God, chosen by God to be the father of the Jewish nation. And you know what? Abraham wasn't perfect. Did you know that Abraham was a liar? Some of you ladies may have another word for him after you hear this story, if, if you haven't heard it before. But you see, one time, Abraham and his wife, uh, Sarah, were traveling to Egypt. Apparently, Sarah was a, was a very beautiful woman. And because of her beauty, Abraham feared that he would be killed. So he says to her, um, honey, let's tell everyone you're my sister. And they can do whatever they want to you, and then that way I won't be killed. <laughs> Is a liar what comes to mind for some of you ladies this morning? <laughs> I'm thinking you're probably thinking he was a loser, a jerk. <laughs> Abraham was also a doubter. You know, God had told him that he would be the father of many nations. It didn't appear like it was going to, to happen like Abraham thought it should since he and his wife were, were getting old and they hadn't had any kids yet. And so Abraham decides to take it upon himself to start his fatherhood journey with his wife's servant. So not only was Abraham a doubter, but he was also an adulterer and a liar and a loser. But you know what's interesting? Abraham did all of this stuff after God had chosen him, after God had handpicked him to be the start of the line that would get us to Jesus. And then there's this guy named Jacob. Jacob was the youngest brother in his family. You know, second-born boys got the shaft in Bible times because the oldest son was the one who received the family inheritance when the father passed away. And so one day, Jacob plots with his mom to deceive his dad who's old and blind and dying so that he can receive the promised birthright and the inheritance that goes along with being the firstborn. Another liar and a deceiver, but still someone that's found in the bloodline of Jesus. And then in verse 3, you see this name, Tamar. I don't miss the first words there before it that says, whose mother was Tamar. Being a second-born son was 10 times better than being a woman in Bible times. I mean, women were 
Well, I was going to say second-class citizens, but I'm not even sure they were that high on the chart when it came to the Jewish people. And then to find one listed in the genealogy of the Messiah, that's remarkable. Especially one who had disguised herself as a prostitute and enticed her father-in-law to sleep with her so that she could have a son since her husband had died and no one else wanted her. And yet we find her name listed in the genealogy of Jesus. And then in verse 5, we see another woman listed whose mother was Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. And even worse than that, she was a Gentile. I'm not sure who the, who the Jews disliked more, women or Gentiles. But this lady is special because she helped save some Israelites who were being hunted. And then they returned the favor by saving her when her city was attacked and destroyed. You know, Rahab was probably one of the first non-Jewish believers in God. And because of her faith, even with the life that she lived, she is in the listing of Jesus' ancestors. And then in verse 6, we see the name King David. That sounds impressive, doesn't it? God referred to David as a man after my own heart. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to have your family, your friends, your mom say something nice about you. But to have God speak those words, a man after my own heart, that's impressive. But look at what Matthew writes. He wrote, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You know, there were uh, multiple women listed in this story, yet Matthew leaves out the name of the mother of Solomon and the soon-to-be wife of the king. Interesting, isn't it? J.D. Greer says that Matthew is wanting us to remember that King David betrayed one of his best friends, Uriah, and then plotted to have him killed to cover up his sin of adultery. A man after God's own heart, but one who fell to temptation, which then led to adultery, which then led to murder, and yet he is in the genealogical line of Jesus. One more. Look at verse 10. We see the name Manasseh. Manasseh was considered to be Israel's most wicked king. You know, we read about him in, in the Old Testament, this book called Second Chronicles. Manasseh became king when he was 12 years old and he sat on the throne for 55 years. The writer of Chronicles tells us that Manasseh led the Jewish nation to do more evil during his time than all the nations that God had destroyed to protect the Jewish people. He turned so far away from God, the scripture tells us, that during his reign that he actually sacrificed his own kids in worship to Baal. Before his reign ended, though, Manasseh did repent. God heard his pleas, and he tried his best to restore the kingdom that he had spent so many years tearing apart. And he's found in the line of Jesus. In case you haven't figured it out yet, Jesus' family line is filled with a bunch of messy, messed up people. Imperfect, corrupt, immoral, unethical, sinners. But hopefully we're all getting the message of hope that can be found in this first chapter of Matthew's book. For you see, the gospel is not just good advice. It is good news. Good news of hope for all mankind. 
the hope to know that Jesus came for us all. He was not ashamed to identify with the outcasts and make them part of his family. These names show us that our names, regardless of our past, regardless of our present, that we can be included in this family line as well. You may feel like an outcast. You're not. He came for you. You may feel worthless. You're not. He came for you. You may think God's plans for you are over. They're not. His plans for you have just begun. For you see, the hope that was found in Matthew's gospel and this list of people is the same hope that is available to you and me today. And that is why we can have hope in this time of year. But that hope can only be ours when we do something with the gift that God has given us. When we accept his offer of eternal life by giving him our life. It may seem like a high price to pay. But when this life is over, there is nothing greater than to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, and then to know that our names can be found in his family line. This is the season of hope. Regardless of what you read, regardless of what you hear, regardless of what you see, we have hope. Because in the city of David, many, many, many years ago, a baby was born that would become our Messiah. He is our good news. He is our hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day that you have blessed us with, for the opportunity to be together and to celebrate, to celebrate the, the hope that we have because you sent your son to us, knowing that he would come and take our place and do for us what no one else in this world has ever offered to do, to die so that we could have a relationship with you, so that we could spend eternity with you. Father, I pray that, that you help us to, to see that hope in this time of the year, even in the midst of the chaos that's going on around us in our world today. Father, let us remember that you are our hope, and that in you we can find the strength that we need for each and every day. This is my prayer I ask in the name of your Son and our Savior. Amen. Do you know that hope? Do you have that hope? Have you accepted that gift that God has for you? That gift that is found in the beautiful, beautiful name of Jesus. If you haven't done that, I'd love to talk to you this morning. Maybe God's placed something else on your heart. You want to talk to somebody, pray with somebody. We have an elder back there in our prayer room, back over here in this far corner. If you want to stop in there, they'd love to do that with you as well. This comes as we stand together and as we sing.